0: From Utrecht, this is Bitcoin Explained. Hey, Shorts. What's up? How exciting! Two weeks ago, you told me that maybe you would go to Bitcoin Amsterdam. Yes. And now you're a speaker. I'm a panelist, probably not a real speaker. That counts. That that's a speaker in my book, Shorts. Sounds good. How exciting! Shorts, today we're gonna discuss we're gonna discuss a blog post by Bitmax Research. That's right. Which is about the op wars. So. Exactly. Very it, nice clickbait title. Do you remember what the name of the blog post is? Was it was it just the op
1: wars? It's called the op wars of 2014. DApps versus Bitcoin transactions. And it's a slightly clickbaity title. Because, well, it was only called wars by certain other people. But wasn't it referred
0: to as the up return wars previously in your memory
1: yeah but some people object that the opportune wars have been sort of that term was phrased by people trying to launch various coins and and trying to make bitcoin developers look bad right so not everybody likes the term okay fair enough okay so let, let's start at the beginning
0: this has been we've discussed this in some of our episodes here and there before
1: i think but First of all, Charles, what is op-return? So when op-return appears in a transaction, so in a script, then as soon as that happens, the script is invalid. And so a nice example, and and so the most practical form to use that would be that your entire script starts with op-return and then it follows whatever you wanna put there. For example, some random text, because when a script is invalid, you know it's not gonna run. And that means that nobody can ever spend it. Because no matter what you do, it's always going to be invalid.
0: Right. But that to me
1: sounds like the transaction would be invalid. Oh, no, no, no. It's an output of a transaction. So if you're sending to an up return transaction, so if you're sending, if if your address, quote unquote, so the script on the blockchain is in up return followed by anything, then whoever tries to spend it will find that their transaction is invalid. Right.
0: Okay. So you can send to an up return It's just provably unspendable. You can't spend anything from an up return. Exactly. From an output that has up return in it.
1: Yes, and because it's provably unspendable, that allows software that processes the Bitcoin blockchain to make some optimizations. It can basically just pretend that those coins don't exist. But whether they really exist or not is kind of in the eye of the beholder. They're there, but it's impossible to spend them. Right. And up return has always been in Bitcoin? Has it always been... It's a a function in Bitcoin has it always been possible? As far as I know, yes, and and so that means it's also been always been possible to put anything you want after the op return code.
0: Right. So you could always create a transaction with opportune However, and now we'll get to this in a second. I think originally transactions that spent from an op No, wait, wait. Transactions that spent to.
1: Wait. Now I'm yeah. Confused. As far as I know, originally, if a, if you created a transaction that spent to an op return, right then nodes generally will not relay that transaction they would simply ignore it however if they saw it in a block they would be fine with it so that's called standardness in this case it's not standard so standard transactions are transactions of a specific shape and form those are automatically relayed and that's partially to prevent people shooting themselves in the foot by uh, creating a transaction that's just wrong and there's probably some other reasons that we can get into in another podcast
0: right yeah So, yeah, so an up return was always possible, but Bitcoin nodes generally just wouldn't forward it to other nodes. That's right. So it's very hard to get it into an actual block. Yeah, you'd have to talk to a miner. Yeah, and then the miner would have to put it into a block because I assume that mining software also by default just wouldn't include it in blocks, right?
1: Yeah, so either you would have to know which node is a miner and then you know, and then maybe that miner is configured that they do consider it standard, but more likely you'd have to, the the miner would have to manually include it through some process.
0: Right. So at some point, and this is what the blog post is about, at some point it was decided that nodes, that Bitcoin nodes, Bitcoin core nodes specifically, although back then it wasn't even called Bitcoin core yet, they would actually start forwarding some up return transactions, right? Yeah.
1: So why was that? Yeah. So in roughly the end of 2013 or the beginning of 2014, there was a release of Bitcoin Core that would let you, that if there was less than 40 bytes or 40 bytes or less after the opportunity message, it would be standard. So you would relay those. And then later on, as we'll discuss, it was increased 80 bytes. And so the reason is, it was kind of, I think the, one of the analogies that was used, there were many analogies used, I'll, I'll stick to the, let's say the friendly ones, is is this this idea of people were breaking windows all the time because they're trying to get inside of a house. And it was nice to, you know, just leave the window open, basically. So it was actually a form, it was meant as a form of damage control. Well, before we get to the analogy or
0: well, now you've given the analogy, but what is it an analogy for? What are we actually talking about? Right. What is the
1: actual damage, right? Right. Why were people breaking windows? Yeah. So basically people were trying to put things on the blockchain that are not transactions, that are not moving money, but that are sharing information. And one example of that, which I'll shamelessly plug, you can also find in my book, is to put the Bitcoin white paper inside the blockchain. Right. And the way you would they would do that is to create a transaction that sends money to a multi-sig address and that multi-sig address would have three keys but those keys you know would not actually be keys because a public key would you know be a nice piece of data but it, they wouldn't be actual keys and it turns out that if you add up all these fake keys you can reconstruct a bitcoin white paper. Now the problem with that is that for nodes who are looking at the blockchain those, those transactions look like they're real. They look like they're really sending money to somebody. And that somebody apparently is a multisig owner. And this is where the problem comes in. Nodes don't only need to relay those transactions and store them in the blockchain. They also need to keep track of this thing called the UTXO set. So there's a set, usually kept in memory, if at all possible, of every coin that currently exists. So when when you create a transaction, you're spending a coin. So those coins no longer exist. And you're creating new coins and those coins do exist. That's what you need to keep keep track of. Mm-hmm. And so these this white paper and this other stuff that was put in that way has to be kept track of by nodes. Even today, even though nobody will ever spend it, you still have to keep track of it. And so the solution is to use Turn. Now you can still put that kind of data on the blockchain if you wanted to, but nodes don't have to keep track of it because they know it is not spendable. Right. So to go one step back or
0: to tackle uh, tackle that step by step. So originally, if you wanted to include data in the blockchain, could be any type of data, you gave the Bitcoin white paper as an example, then what people would originally do is basically break down the Bitcoin white paper into data and then create public keys that aren't actually public keys because there are no private keys for them. And these public keys would just include the data that is the Bitcoin white paper, right? Yes. Right, so and then... That's transmitted over the Bitcoin network. Everyone verifies these as transactions. It's included in the blockchain. And then it's also included in the UTXO set. Now, with OpReturn, it's still included in the blockchain. Yes. However, it's not included in the UTXO set. That's the real difference there, right? No, it's just no. These coins are provably unspendable, so we don't have to store these in the UTXO set. Yo, what is going on, guys? We are proud to have Voltage as a sponsor of this episode. How many of you developers out there have wanted a streamlined infrastructure provider for your particular project? Well, I'll tell you what. Voltage is the Bitcoin infrastructure provider you have been looking for that makes building on Bitcoin quick and easy, whether it's Bitcoin nodes, Lightning nodes, BTC pay, and so much more. But don't take it from me. Just ask the guys over at Amboss, Sphinx, Podcast Index, and Thunder Games, and so many others that you guys already know and love. Their enterprise-grade products make it fast and easy to build, deploy, and scale your next project. So make it easy on yourself. Even Normie Plebs can use the dashboard or API. Don't wait before the next block confirmation. Let your team focus on building great products and let Voltage handle all the rest. Voltage is your go-to zero management Bitcoin infrastructure solution.
1: Yeah, so this saves some time because now when, you know, you still have to download the blockchain, you still have to check every block, that does not change. But the difference is that this little database that you're keeping of the UTXO set, that no longer has to grow. And you can also normally throw away old blocks. So if you have a small hard drive, you can always toss out the old blocks, but you can never toss out anything from the UTXO set.
0: Yeah, so the two main benefits are, first of all, storage, especially for pruned nodes that don't store the entire blockchain because they now have a benefit because they have a smaller UTXO set. Mm -hmm. And the other one is computational. When a new transaction comes in, there's a smaller UTXO set to check the new transaction against.
1: Yeah. So I guess a better way to say that is it's, it's saving you potentially saving you memory. So ideally you want to keep the entire UTXO set in RAM. Now that's already not possible these days. I guess back when this, when this discussion was happening, the UTXO set may have been much smaller, maybe a, few hundred megabytes now it is over 10 gigabytes so for now most people unless you have like you know 20 gigabytes of ram you're probably not holding it in ram anyway but it is nice if you can keep the UTXO set in ram all the time it's much faster and we did an episode about that it is a episode 15 in which we explain a mechanism that could solve this problem called UTXO. right and that would that would remove the need to keep the uh, UTXO set in ram but it comes at the expense of, of some trade offs. So. And we just explained those there.
0: Okay, let's stick to the up, up return for now. Yep. So, yeah, people were storing data in the blockchain. This was this came at a cost for people that were running, running full nodes. And so at some point, developers figured okay, look, guys, if you're going to store data in the blockchain anyways, then please use up return. And that way, it, it, there's a there's a smaller cost to all nodes. Yeah. So, but there back, was a
1: second request too. I would say because this limit of forty bytes. Yeah, I was gonna get there. Yeah. Okay. So if the F, so,
0: up return was always in the protocol, but it was basically useless because nodes wouldn't forward up return transactions. And then Bitcoin developers said, "All right, guys, you're gonna store data anyways, so we'll allow, we'll effectively enable up return." But then the next debate was about the size of the op-return messages.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so one, one number you could have used for that size was to say, okay, how big can these multi transactions be? And I think that was 172 bytes. So you could have said, okay, we're just going to make op-return 172 bytes. Because in that case, there's really no reason to use these these sick keys anymore because you might as well use op-return. But there was a simultaneous, I guess, movement or desire to to not make the blockchain unnecessarily big. Mm-hmm. And I think it's useful to look at that in perspective. So right now there is a fee market. So that means that if you're putting a lot of data onto the blockchain, it's gonna be very expensive for you to do that. Or at least there's there's a mechanism to make sure that, you know, useful stuff goes on the blockchain more easily than useless stuff depending on if, if you define useful by how much you're willing to pay for it. But back then, blocks were super small. They were maybe 10 kilobytes or, or 100 kilobytes. I don't know what they were in 2014. And that mean, meant that this opportunity data could just make blocks really big for the time that happened. And mm-hmm. we've done an episode in the past where we looked at, I think it's episode number 55, where we looked at old Node software and see how that old Node software would perform under the current block sizes. And it turns out that very old node software, especially from say 2012 would not have been able to keep up on that with a one megabyte with actual one megabyte blocks, right? or at least not very easily. So back then it was actually necessary to keep blocks small, basically from a more altruistic point of view. And that's what a lot of the discussion was about. Like what is good behavior on the blockchain? Be- yeah. So why was, so the, the first limit that
0: was set, well. Initially, the limit was zero. Initially, up return was effectively impossible. But then the limit was increased to 40. And why
1: why was it increased to 40? Okay, so the idea behind 40 is that it allows you to put a hash in there. A a typical hash using normal cryptography like SHA-256 is 32 bytes. So this allows you to put a 32-byte hash on the blockchain and then a few extra bytes to do, I don't know, some metadata for that hash. Now... There were some protocols out there that wanted 80 bytes. and Yeah,
0: if... counterparty in specific. Or yeah. The, the, I... This is what sort of the, this blog post that is the reason we're making this podcast. That That's the main example that's
1: given. It's it's basically
0: about the counterparty protocol.
1: Yeah, so I don't know for sure if the increase to 80 sites was only for counterparty or whether there was another protocol that needed it. But basically, there was some back and forth. And, and I guess people decided to just allow 80 bytes. But but really, 40 should be enough for most things, but it requires a little bit more work for those protocols. So if, if you look at something like, as far as I so know... Th- the reason 40 is enough
0: is what you're saying is because really the only data you ever need to include in the blockchain really is a hash. Yes. Because then you anchor any other data you want to anchor in. And that's really all you ever need to do. Yeah. So if you're building
1: some sort of other protocol, and we talked about open timestamps in an earlier episode, we talked about other things. Generally, that protocol has its own software, and that software should take care of its own data. It should have its own peer-to-peer network, essentially. It should send its its own data around. Maybe that data is a blockchain. Maybe that data is something else. But that's more complicated to implement because now you have to build your own peer-to-peer network. And so a lot of these protocols back in the day, and a very likely Counterparty as well, preferred to just shove everything onto the Bitcoin blockchain and not have to deal with that complexity. And so that was some of the discussion about. But Counterparty was using the multisig solution in the beginning. So they were putting data on the blockchain anyway. And so, yeah, I guess then it makes more sense to say, okay, let's just increase the operator limit to 80 bytes so they stop doing that. Right. So at
0: first it was increased to 40. This was in 2014. And the argument there, as we explained, or as you explained, is that you really only need 40 because you can just include a hash. But then people, uh, you, you say the counterparty project, it was using more than 40 for whatever they want to do. So essentially Bitcoin developers conceded and said, all right, well, if you're going to do it anyways, that's, here, that's... here's
1: 80, here, have fun with it, with your 80. You, you definitely... <laughs> I think that's how it went, but there may have been other projects there too that needed 80s for some reason. Now, there is some confusion because if you look at the original proposal, so the original release that had the 40-byte limit, there was also a pre-release. So with Bitcoin, or Bitcoin Core anyway, nowadays, what happens is when you make changes, they go into a pull request on GitHub, and then once they're approved, they get merged, and they end up in this master branch. And this master branch, sort of a working copy, which is not released, but anybody can run it, so there was a time when there was a limit of 80 if you were using that master branch of Bitcoin. But generally, that's not considered final software. It could have bugs in it, etc. So before that release came out, it was reduced to 40. Does that make sense? So there was a limit of 80, but only in unreleased software. Then there was a limit of 40 in the release software. And then much later, there was another limit of 80. And so some of the fight, war, whatever you want to call it, was, seems to be about that. Ah, yeah, so they they announced. Well, it was sort of seen as as a revoking of the eighty, right? Uh, but that was never
0: really released, right? Got it. it. It was never eighty, but it was announced to be eighty, and then it was brought back to forty, and that's, I think that's it, what threw some people off. That
1: so I think what happened is there was yeah there was this this thing was introduced in the code, and they just picked eighty as the first number. Then there was they I think Jeff Garzik put it on the mailing list saying hey we should probably talk about that, and then people said okay let's make it forty. And that was what went into the release. So, um, and then there's, you can find newer discussions where people said, Oh, you know, we told you about counterparty. And then I think Greg Maxwell would say, no, you didn't. You told us after basically this release and then we increased it, but, but, you know, so that's a whole fight about what was the sequence of events there. So, and right now the limit is 80. Yes. Yeah, and there was a
0: minor maybe mistake in the blog post where it said that currently the limit is 83, but you you say it's just 80, right? So
1: the the amount of data you can put on it is 80. However, the size of the output, so what the script on the blockchain would look like, is 83. And the reason is because you have one byte that says up return, then you have another byte that says, I'm going to give you a bunch of data now, and then another byte that says how much data. So that, that would be 80 bytes, for example, and then the data itself. So that in total, that's 83. And there's some some weird edge cases where you could have like one up return and then say, I'm gonna, and then you could say, I'm gonna give you five bytes of data and, and now I'm gonna give you another five bytes of data. So there's like ways of grouping your data. There's just very subtle implementation details, but as long as you stay below the 83 bytes for the whole script, you're fine.
0: Right. Now, one thing you already alluded to is that back then, back when this discussion was happening, I think people were really looking at the Bitcoin blockchain as sort of a shared resource. And they weren't thinking about it as much, it seemed like, like we would today as a market. So today we, in general, I think we have more of this idea that whoever's willing to pay the highest fees gets into the block Mm -hmm. and we have a block size limit to protect nodes essentially to protect users from having to store too much data and back then people weren't really thinking about fee markets yet there were no fee markets yet so it was really just considered a shared resource now from today's perspective don't you think it would make more sense to just remove any opportune limit and just say whoever wants to pay for it will pay or put differently. Would you say that maybe the people that were making that argument, what was it eight years ago, maybe
1: were right that it should have just been allowed and whoever pays pays? I'm not sure. So one of the things is that the the fees that you're paying go to miners. They don't go to node operators. So every node operator is still somewhat altruistically running these things. So you'd still want to see what do you want to what do you want node operators to do for you? Mm-hmm. Do you want them to store your, your Bible, or do you only want to do payments? So you could still have that argument that even if somebody was willing to pay a very high rate, a very high fee to miners to include lots of opportune data, you could argue, well, but they're not paying the node operators to store that op- opportune data, and people are not running nodes to you know, publish the Bible or whatever. but they don't but, have to
0: store the data. Though they still need to verify it once.
1: Yeah, they still need to process it. Yeah. So, but yeah, the burden is a bit lower, especially when you use Operator and it's much better than the alternatives. On the other hand, there's also now things like RGB and things like open timestamps, various other projects that show that you can just use a single hash or even not a hash at all, because from a privacy point of view, things like a tweaked signatures, tweak public keys or tweak signatures are even a more privacy friendly way to put data on the blockchain, which also makes them indistinguishable from from regular transactions, that's that one thing that means that you can't stop it, whatever you do in, in the protocol. Right. But it also means that by using the protocol in that way, even though you're using it for something that's not moving money around, you are helping the people that are moving money around because you're creating a bigger anonymity set for everybody else, because you're just creating a bunch of noise between all the transactions. Right, well, that could also be
0: considered an argument for- for removing the limit it's like you say if you can create it anyways and no one can even see that you're just creating data that's non-transaction data essentially
1: you can't see it if you're not using opportune so those those protocols that use tweak signatures don't use opportune at all well that's what i
0: mean so at that point why don't we just say okay people can put data on the blockchain and we can't stop them we might as well just make it easy and have it done in such a way that it doesn't impact the UTXO set.
1: But then it's actually hurting privacy because if people start using upper for their data instead of these more privacy-friendly ways, then they're just hurting their own privacy. So, I, But as far as I know, there's nobody currently with a serious proposal of why they would need bigger up messages. I think Bitcoin SV is is experimenting with very, 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 very large up return messages and like has 99.999999% of their chain with up data. So um, I don't know how, I, how, how I would feel about it, but so, so far I don't think it's a relevant question. So
0: the general idea behind, and I, I think this is what you mentioned when you said some people don't like the term up wars, is that this part of bitcoin's history is sort of considered i Vitalik decided to launch
1: ethereum yeah but that makes very little sense because he could have used if if bitcoin was you know if he needed opturn then he could have done the same thing with op Multisig. so i don't think that particular thing would have uh, would have made the difference it's not possible to run ethereum on top of bitcoin with or without opturn
0: and so. the other thing anyone can do of course is just fork Bitcoin core and allow for bigger operator messages yeah. since it's not a consensus rule. So you know, maybe but, the but lesson I think, from that I discussion
1: think, yeah. was that Bitcoin was clearly not going the way of of allowing everything and everyone to do complicated yeah. things on the blockchain and and that may have been a you know, a realization point for him to say okay, if Bitcoin is not going that direction, I'll try my own project.
0: Yeah, I think that's sort of the argument, or that's also the the argument sort of presented in this blog post that it was a cultural thing that the Bitcoin culture at that time was not very accommodating to non transaction data on the blockchain, and that's why Vitalik decided to start his own blockchain.
1: Perhaps it might also have something to do with being able to make money, but and, uh, and of course the it, nice thing about having a new <laughs> chain is you know you can do whatever you want, so it does give you a lot of creative freedom. That's the more optimistic interpretation of it.
0: Yes, they can clearly do whatever they want.
1: We cover everything about UPReturn? I think so. Well, it might be fun to mention there was a incident in two thousand nineteen, a project called Veryblock, right, which which I believe has Jeff Garzik as their advisor. And so at some point, there was a lot of increase in the number of upturn transactions, not the size of them, just the sheer number of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where they were starting to compete, you know, they had to pay some pretty high fees to compete with regular transactions. And it was interesting to watch, and there was kind of a worry that this would just mean that, you know, operator transactions are the buyer of last resort, and every block from now on will be full. That was uh, that was basically
0: an altcoin that used Bitcoin's proof of work as its security? Yeah, I like believe that. so. And, I think
1: roughly what the idea was, is that people on that altcoin would create candidate blocks, basically, and the hash of those candidate blocks would be on the Bitcoin chain. And then whoever paid the highest fee on the Bitcoin chain would be the winning block on that chain. So you'd have lots and lots of Bitcoin transactions, each with a hash that could represent the future block and then... Whichever has the highest he would win. So it would be a nice way to give money to Bitcoin miners. But uh, last time I checked on CoinMarketCap, it said market data is untracked. So it sounds like that's not going very well.
0: It <laughs> doesn't sound very good, sures But who knows? Okay, I think that's it. Or not?
1: Yep, that's all I got. So Great. thank you for listening to Bitcoin. Explained.